free-ish pastors of our congregation. And uh, it is uh, my wonderful joy and privilege to open God's Word with us, officially, I guess, for the final time. But uh, um, as we get started, I wanted to ask us a a question uh, for us to think about. Uh, What do car parts, medication, and electronics and those industries have in common? Yeah, what do car parts, medication, and electronic, those industries, have in common? Why don't you turn to the person next to you, try to figure out the answer that I'm looking for, and uh, I'll give you a moment to do that. Who's got an answer? Shoot up your hand if you've got an answer. Yeah, Isaac? What's... They're all manufactured? Yeah, cool. That's good. Not exactly what I was looking for, but that's good. Anything, anything else? Expensive. That is true. That is true. That is also true. There are a lot of... Oh, I, I, what, I'll give one, one, somebody one last crack. What, what am I looking for? They're all painful. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. They can be quite painful. And actually, that's not too far off. Um, uh, the answer I was particularly, and the answer, the similarity that um, for the purposes of our talk this morning, is that these are some of the industries actually hit hardest um, by counterfeits. Yeah, the industries hit hardest by counterfeits. Now, now not, by, not by competitors, you know, just offering a cheaper product, yeah, but, but by counterfeits actually feigning to be that real thing. Um, and so, again, not, not like counterfeits that you see trying, that, you know, making Nike backpacks or Apple iPhone sneakers and all that sort of stuff. No, um, these counterfeits in these particular industries have actually caused a, a lot of pain to regions, but a lot of damage. Um, not just for the, the real companies and their bottom line, uh, but actually for the everyday person as well, buying these counterfeits, often unknowingly. Right, let me give you um, some fairly recent examples. For car parts, for example, um, there have been counterfeit brake pads um, containing asbestos um, and counterfeit airbag spiral cables that trigger an, that, that, that's meant to trigger an airbag during an accident. Um, a, a bit of trivia for you. Apparently, counterfeit auto parts have a higher profit margin than illegal narcotics. There you go. Uh, in the world of med- medication, the World Health Organization estimates that one in 10 medical products in developing countries are counterfeit or at least substandard. Right? They estimate each year that there are 116,000 deaths in sub-Saharan Africa alone caused by counterfeit anti-malarial drugs. In electronics, in the UK, over a million counterfeit electronics are sold each year. Um, Here's a really, really bad screenshot of a counterfeit Nutribullet that explodes less than five seconds of use. It explodes like a little mini bomb. Um, Counterfeits can and continue to cause harm and can cause a great deal of damage, even costing people their lives. Now, I want to suggest for us that as dangerous as all those examples are, um, counterfeit Christianity, uh, getting to the point, is just as, if not far more, dangerous. Why? Because counterfeit Christianity has um, just enough outward form to veil the eyes and hearts of those who hold to it. Now, counterfeit Christianity can mistakenly deceive those who believe it that they are right with God when in reality, in God's eyes, they couldn't be further from Him. And you don't need me to tell you that the consequences of that mistake, well, that's eternal, isn't it? 
Now, that's a pretty heavy beginning as we jump back into the Gospel of Matthew um, after spending four weeks wrestling with um, gender and sex. But it's worth saying from the outset, uh, because Matthew 12, um, uh, it's worth beginning in that, in that way, because Matthew 12 isn't for the skeptic. It's not for the unbeliever. Yeah, Matthew 12 is for the religious churchgoer. The message of our passage is for those who are familiar with the pews, with our songs, with prayer meetings, with church lunches. Right? Matthew 12 is a word to people like you and me, like you and me, that we might be warned, uh, respond, and repent. So why don't you pray with me as we begin? Lord Jesus, we know that as we sit with Bibles open, um, no good can come of it unless our hearts are also open. And so we ask, especially in a part of your word that uh, may not be new for many of us, that you open our eyes and our hearts to your living and breathing word this morning so that we might hear it, trust it, and obey. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, um, you've probably noticed uh, in our passage today that it centers around a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees about um, the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, For the Pharisees, religious rulers in uh, the Jewish community in Jesus' day, it was incredibly important that the Sabbath was faithfully kept. It was an important part of Israel's worship to God. Now, just to give you an idea, according to authoritative Jewish uh, texts, which record rabbinic discussions on ethics, it was believed that if Israel were to just keep two Sabbaths according to the rules in a row, that they believed that they would immediately be redeemed. Right? So keeping the Sabbath is a big deal if you're a first century Jew, and even bigger deal if you're a Pharisee. Now, what did keeping the Sabbath involve? Well, in very simple terms, it meant following the pattern God had set at creation in Genesis 1, right? So working for six, resting for one. Whenever you did for six days of work, you stopped, you rested on the seventh, and you worshipped, and you went to the temple and the synagogue and all that sort of stuff. Now, because the Pharisees didn't want people to accidentally mess that up, um, they basically did a full risk assessment, and then they put into writing the types of work that you had to rest from on the Sabbath. And they came up with 39 in all, just to cover all bases. One of those 39 was to harvest grain. Now, that's all for a bit of background. So as we come to verse 1, the Pharisees spot Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and they see these hungry disciples casually just grab some grain to snack on as they pass through. And you can imagine the Pharisees looking at that, and they're pointing with their fingers, yelling to Jesus in verse 2, Oi, look, your disciples are harvesting grain, one of those works that you're meant to rest from. That's unlawful on the Sabbath. This is like the first century uh, attempt at at cancelling people in a way. So how does Jesus respond? Well, as he often does, his response goes to the heart of the matter. In fact, Jesus' response is so confronting that you may have heard at the end of our passage, when you read out for us, verse 14, we see from his response, the Pharisees begin to plot how they might kill Jesus. That's how confronting his response is. And so the roadmap for our time together will be looking at how Jesus responds. We'll first consider his declaration and his demonstration, and then we'll consider his demand. Yeah, Consider his declaration and demonstration, and secondly, consider his demand. Um, Let's look at our first point. Read with me from verse 3. It's on the screens if you want to follow along. He answered, Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the temple, and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. 
if you had known what these words mean, next slide, let's go on. Let's go back. Is it? No one's there. Thanks, Jeremy. If you had known, have a look in your Bibles. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is law, Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus' response to the Pharisees is pretty unusual. Yeah? If, if Jesus wanted to directly um, dismiss the Pharisees, in that moment, he had a bunch of options. right? Um, he could have just said, look, the disciples, not, they're not farmers to begin with, so going through grains not really work. Or he could have just simply just said, hey, the, um, the, the, the disciples were hungry. And so anybody with a working pair of eyes could tell that this isn't the same as um, taking a saw to harvest grain. Right? There are plenty of ways, in other words, that Jesus could have told the Pharisees, hey, just back off for a second. It's, it's not what you think it is. But he doesn't do that, does he? Right? Instead, Jesus makes three really, really quick arguments, um, each argument referring to situations in the Jewish scriptures, um, which the Pharisees would know well, before he wraps up with a declaration in verse 8. Now, before we get to that declaration, let's go through his build-up, yeah? because Jesus' response to the Pharisees, uh, uh, he first begins with King David, the greatest king in Israel's history up to that point, from verses 3 to 4. Uh, he reminds them that on a Sabbath... Uh, Back in David's time, even David did something considered unlawful. There was a time where he was so famished that he went to the priest at that time. He lied about being on a mission from King Saul, and he ate the bread that only priests are meant to eat. Kind of a little bit odd, hey. And then he moves, Jesus moves to another argument to talk about the priesthood and the temple in verses 5 to 6. That if you really wanted to be sticklers um, about Sabbath law, you Pharisees, technically priests work Every Sabbath, they're working in the temple, and yet they're innocent, right? If anything, they work even harder on the Sabbath. And then in verse 7, Jesus quotes the Pharisees from the book of Hosea, where God speaks to his people at the time who observe the rules, and yet they're corrupt in almost every way. And to them, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So what's Jesus' point with those three really, really quick arguments? Well, in a sentence, thanks, Jeremy, that the Sabbath is designed to be a blessing, not a burden. That's what he's trying to say using those examples. That the Sabbath is designed to be a blessing, not a burden. Um, how so? Well, um, let's go back through Jesus' build-up. In the case of King David, Scripture doesn't condemn King David uh, uh, eating the bread, even if it was unlawful to do so. How come? Well, because the Sabbath is all about being life-giving. Right? And so David being famished is not condemned for taking the bread. For the priests, uh, yes, they worked on the Sabbath, but it's because it blessed Israel through their work right, in the temple. Their, their work of presenting offerings, the other roles that they do in the temple, they all help people rightly worship God. And so working, um, Sabbath, it's all about worship. So priests, their work, they remain innocent. In the case of the quote from Hosea, Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of being superficially caught up in keeping the rules. Like the Israels would do, Israelites would do with their sacrifices in Hosea's day to neglect showing mercy and neglecting those the Sabbath was meant to uplift, the diminished, um, that's what Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of doing. So basically, what is Jesus trying to say? Um, no, still not working. Um, what's Jesus saying? That the Pharisees' concerns 
showed they completely missed the point of the Sabbath. That the Pharisees burdened people with what was designed to be a blessing. Now that's not a new argument that Jesus is saying here, right? Sabbath rest, historically, has always meant to be a blessing for God's people. We looked at it briefly in Hebrews uh, over a month ago. For good reason as well, right? Sabbath rest is meant to remind the people of God of God's goodness at creation. Uh, Sabbath rest acted as a sign of Israel's special relationship with God. It was a gift from God to make his people more holy. It was a reminder from God to regularly prioritize repairing the broken, replenishing the diminished, and replenishing, restoring the drained. Now, um, we've uh, currently got, at the moment, some significant games happening this weekend, don't we, with the NRL preliminary finals. And so let me try to explain what the Pharisees were doing using NRL terms. If you don't follow NRL, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I actually don't follow NRL, um, but I thought it was helpful anyway. So imagine we've got four finalists, well, three, uh, uh, three now, um, rocked up to really, these really huge games with the sole mindset of going on the field and just playing by the rules. Right? So these teams, they walk into the field and they're like, I am committed, we are committed to never doing a forward pass. We are committed to never knocking on the ball. We will avoid all dangerous positions where we might accidentally do a head tackle or a dangerous throw. So even if we lose 100 zip, we'll be okay. Why? Because we played by the rules. Now, if they did that, what would the reaction be? Mass outrage, right? The rules are there so the game can be competitive. Aggressive plays can still be safely made. And so one of the teams ultimately comes out on top, so long as it's not Penrith, right, Mush? Now, that's pretty much how the Pharisees approached the Sabbath. They were so caught up with the rules so fixated on every technical point that they lost sight of the forest from the trees. They were so burdensome that they would pop up like meerkats and condemn Jesus' disciples for having a snack on the Sabbath. And so if there's anyone who can say that they've missed the mark, it's Jesus. Why? Well, because of the declaration that he's been building up to in verse 8. What's the declaration? That he, the Son of Man, is the Lord of of the Sabbath. Right? Jesus says he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus sets the rules of the Sabbath. He instituted the Sabbath. He calls a shot about it, all the shots about it. Now, I remember back in high school, um, one of the chemistry teachers that we had at the time, his name was Dr. Thicket. Um, he wrote the textbook that everybody would use for um, year 12 chemistry. Uh, now, I wasn't clever enough to, to study chemistry, but I remember that everybody who chose that subject wanted him to be their particular teacher over everybody else in the science faculty. Why? Because they knew that if he was in their class, well, at least they'd be guaranteed to know that he'd know what he's talking about because he wrote the Jolly textbook, of course. Now, in a more significant way, you could say that Jesus wrote the textbook on the Sabbath. In declaring himself the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus was telling the Pharisees that he was the second person of the Trinity through whom all things were made, and without him nothing was made. He also instituted the Sabbath. It was his idea. He knows what the intent and purpose of it was, because he wrote it into the fabric of our universe. He's the one who passed it as law to Moses, so that the newly formed nation of Israel would observe the Sabbath for their holiness and for their good. In short, what's he saying? He's telling the Pharisees that he's God. 
So if there was anyone who had the authority to speak about the Sabbath, if there was anyone who could critique a group of religious leaders obsessing over insignificant details about the Sabbath, it's Jesus, God in the flesh. But Jesus doesn't just declare yeah, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In the rest of our reading, he goes on to demonstrate just that. So why don't you read on with me from verse 9. Um, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable... Um, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful um, to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Now, Jesus moves straight from his conversation um, um, with, this, uh, with the Sabbath into, the, into the, now the synagogue, where there we find a man in verse 10 with a shriveled hand. Meanwhile, um, the, the Pharisees, probably very offended, now fuming against what Jesus just declared to them, they're now in verse 10 looking for a reason to bring charges against him. But to them, Jesus isn't the Lord of the Sabbath, as he claims. Jesus is just some lawless, blaspheming renegade teaching ideas that meant he needed to be taken out of the picture. And the man with the shriveled hand is the perfect test case to prove just how lawless Jesus is. And so the Pharisees, they ask in verse 10, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus? The man's hand, shriveled, probably just means paralyzed, meant, hey, he's not in any life-threatening danger. According to Sabbath rules, you can just treat him on any other day. Jesus, the miracle worker, could just easily come back the next day. And so there was only one answer to their question according to Pharisee rules, and they knew it. And so how does Jesus respond to that? Well, he just simply heals the the man's hand, doesn't he? He demonstrates that he is Lord and God of the Sabbath, but not before calling out the Pharisees' narrow-mindedness in verses 11 and 12. See, for some reason, the Pharisees were all good to allow the rescue of a sheep that would fall into a pit on a Sabbath. But when it came to a human life, a life far more precious, a life made in the image of God, they would not permit a healing. And I hope you see the irony in this passage. For Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a day to do good. It's a day to love God and love neighbor. It's a day to heal, to rest and restore. For the Pharisees, the Sabbath is all about keeping and preserving rules. Rather than doing good, they keep laws at the expense and neglect of doing good. Rather than doing good, they are filled with inward hatred and they try to trap and corner and even begin plotting someone's death. And so as we come to the end of our account, well, what do we learn about counterfeit faith as we began at the start of the talk? And it's far from an exhaustive list, but I want to suggest that we see three traits of counterfeit faith. Let's look at each in turn. Um, I'm going to need your help again, Jeremy. Um, Counterfeit faith likely sees a Christian faith as a set of rules we keep or a list of duties we do. Counterfeit faith likely sees a Christian faith as a set of rules we keep or a list of duties we do. Now, um, We see this at a very extreme level in our passage, don't we? Keeping the rules is everything for the Pharisees, even if it ignores everything the Sabbath is actually about. Now, having said that, of course, um, there are rules that Christians ought to abide by. And of course, there are things that we do and don't do. But real faith, unlike counterfeit faith, doesn't reduce faith down to just rules. 
Now, um, I've done a fair bit of work in the youth ministry space, and obviously I'll be heading into a context where I'll be working with young people again. And the question that I often get asked goes something along these sorts of lines. Um, Dom, uh, where's the line for fill in the blank? Right? Where is the line? How far can I go? When does it no longer become acceptable for fill in the blank? Right? You name it, right? Where's the line for sexual purity? Where's the line before it's considered gossip? Where's the line for honoring my parents? Where's the line for being a good student? Right? Now, I'm not condemning that sort of questioning. It can be appropriate. It can be helpful to kind of know a little bit more about that. But more often than not, the mindset that's behind the question asking is that they see the Christian faith as a set of rules, don't they? That sort of questioning is pushing for detail to make sure that you don't overstep boundaries. That, that in asking that, you might even be neglecting the actual intent and blessing behind God's commands and instructions. Right? To quote an article I read not too long ago, to see Christianity as merely a set of rules or duties turns a joyful, spirit-filled walk with Jesus into a joyless, calculated pursuit of goodness in our own strength often for our own glory, right? A, a faith that looks like that um, very firmly leans into the territory of counterfeit faith. Um, next slide, Jeremy. Um, counterfeit faith um, can care disproportionately about periphery matters of the Christian faith. Yeah? Counterfeit faith can care disproportionately about periphery matters of the Christian faith. See, friends, counterfeit faith, faith has a way of um, caring about things that are secondary over things that are actually primary. Case in point, the Pharisees, right? They want people to obey the Sabbath. Is that a good thing? Yes, absolutely. As we've said, the Sabbath is a gift from God to his people to be enjoyed. But we see in our passage a disproportionate focus, don't we? To the point that it made it harder to rest on the Sabbath than probably any other day of the week. See, one of the easiest ways to have a subtle version of counterfeit Christianity is, is, is to focus on peripheral things that are secondary over what is central. They're still a part of the faith because it concerns things that are usually worthwhile, but it overcommits to it and makes it everything. And so for us, it might look like, well, putting a disproportionate emphasis about the way people are baptized over and above celebrating baptisms or desiring to be baptized or desiring more baptisms. Right, we might put a disproportionate emphasis on, on, on someone's lifestyle, their, what they post on social media or the decisions they make without ever caring or actually even praying about that person's spiritual condition. Not putting a disproportionate emphasis, another one, on, on a preacher's preaching style or how long a sermon is at the expense of the substance in the preaching and the call to gospel living that comes from the preaching. You see? The types of this sort of thinking, they're endless. But focusing and making much of periphery things over and above central things can be a symptom of subtle counterfeit Christianity. And the third one uh, from um, the passage, that, that, that just to point out, that counterfeit faith often burdens others by focusing and finding the failure in others. Yeah? Counterfeit faith often burdens others by focusing and finding the failure in others. Again, we see that in our passage, don't we? The Pharisees are very quick to point out the flaws in the disciples. They're quick to accuse them. They go out of their way to make much of people's supposed failures. They try to trap Jesus quickly. They burden others with, just with their presence. And often doing this serves as a way to feel proud about a counterfeit believer's accomplishments. 
Now, they might never say something out loud like this, but by seeing the failure in other people's faith actually leads them to feel more content about what they've done and more proud of their achievements. And they probably actually think of themselves as more spiritual, more godly, more favored, more loved by God. Regardless, an unmistakable sign of counterfeit faith is to look and nitpick at what's wrong in other people's lives in order to judge them instead of looking for what's right in order to encourage them. Jesus condemns the Pharisees later uh, in this book for that exact reason. Uh, He goes on to say later that the Pharisees tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Friends, I wonder what you make of um, this list. I've tried to be as generic as possible in those descriptions, right? I'm, I'm not first person, not second person, right? Just, but I wonder what you make of that list. If you're anything like me, chances are some of these statements sadly describe you well. Perhaps you realize that there are more counterfeit tendencies in your walk with Jesus than you previously cared to admit. Perhaps the rule-loving, periphery-focusing, burden-adding tendencies of the Pharisees are evident in how you think, and maybe in even how you relate with other people. Perhaps at this point, some of you are sitting there going, oh, is my faith counterfeit? How do I I know? What should be our way forward? What hope do we have if that's the case? Well, that's the focus of our second point. Because we've considered Jesus' declaration, we're now going to consider his demand. Um, Now, uh, friends, the clue to our way forward lies in what Jesus has already declared about himself. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Bible passages that sandwich either side of the passage that Wendy read out for us. See, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is in many ways an unexpected Lord. It's partly why the Pharisees could not see him as the promised Messiah. It's partly why even the great John the Baptist, just in our last chapter, um, sends messengers from prison to double-check that Jesus is actually who he says he is. Because John just misses it. He doesn't see it. Because Jesus is an unexpected, not ordinary Lord and God. See, what sort of Lord is he? What is Jesus like to those he loves? Well, let's look forward again. We're looking at the bread part of the sandwich. Um, Let's look forward to Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, and then we'll go back to Matthew 11 to paint a portrait of what this unexpected Lord is like. Read with me from 12, 15. Aware of this, uh, this is the plot to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Um, He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. And this is key. A bruised reed he will not break. See, who is our Lord? Jesus our Lord is one who, if he finds a bruised reed... And maybe we're feeling a little bruised right now. Instead of coming up to the reed and snapping it, he's the one who will tape it up in hopes that it will regain its strength. A smoldering wick, we continue, he will not snuff out. Now, Jesus, our Lord, is one who approaches a candle who has but a small ember, and maybe you're feeling a little small right now, and he doesn't wet his fingers to snuff out the flame. 
No, he's one who will blow on the flame gently and fan it so that the flame might return. Till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will be put, will put their hope. Your friends, Jesus our Lord is the complete opposite, I hope you see, to the trigger-happy, burden-pouring Pharisees. That's Matthew 12. Well, what about Matthew 11? Well, moments before Jesus is accused, Jesus our Lord demands those who are weary and burdened to do what? To come to him. Not to accuse them, not to belittle them, not to trample upon them. See, what, why does he want people to come to him? Chapter 11, verse 28. Um, I forget if I've got that. Yep. Uh, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear that? Jesus demands us to come to him so he would give rest for our souls, to receive the yoke that he gives. A yoke is typically a heavy weight, so heavy that it can only be held by the strength of an oxen's shoulders. But Jesus' yoke that he gives is easy, and that burden is light. See, Jesus' gift of rest is completely different to the Pharisees' vision for rest. The yoke he gives is nothing like the burden the Pharisees lay on people's shoulders. He desires that we, the weary and burdened, come to him and receive the rest that he provides. Now, we get that in theory, but in, in, in actuality, I think that we actually find that difficult to believe. We understandably default to just what we see, right? The wealthy people tend to look down on the poor. Beautiful people are put off by the ugly. The powerful keep to themselves. And so surely someone like Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with a counterfeit like me. Um, Dane Ortland, I think, illustrates the pastor in the U.S., illustrates that difficulty so well. We naturally, he thinks, he writes, we naturally think of Jesus touching us, reaching out to us, the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, with a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. Do you see Jesus reaching out to you a little bit like that? Because if you do, friends, thank God we have his word that rebukes those assumptions. Because no matter how far, how lacking, how crushed we might be by our counterfeit tendencies, guess what? Jesus, our Lord, the gentle and humble one, doesn't react to those who belong to him the way that we instinctively think he might. We've just read that our Lord desires and demands we come. And receive his rest. So would we heed his demands? Because it is not just rest for our souls. But the more we dwell richly and obey his demand to come to him, the more those counterfeit inclinations just fall away. How so? Well, let's go back right, to those three. How will we stop seeing faith as simply rules to keep and to follow? Well, if we keep resting in Jesus and his completed work for us upon the cross, our doing now comes from a place of gratitude above all else, doesn't it? How will we stop putting disproportionate attention on periphery matters that our counterfeit hearts naturally wander towards? Well, if, what we, if we actually allow the transformed heart and power that Jesus has already given us, one that can love what he loves and can care what he cares about, to actually transform us and our concerns and our priorities, well, those things will also fall away. Fall away. How will we stop focusing on the failure of other people, on the failures of others, and, and lift ourselves in the process? Well, if we look at Jesus and the way that he loved us, knowing all of our failures, and, can, and the way he continues to love us in spite of that, well, how can we continue to focus on the failure of others? Do you see? 
The only answer to the counterfeit faith, to a counterfeit faith, is to hear the demand and drink deeply from the one who gave himself for us. Our Sunday school answers to this question are actually right. It's Jesus. Jesus, by his spirit, is actually working in you to unburden your soul from your counterfeit tendencies. The Pharisees remained in their counterfeit faith because they just refused to come to Jesus. And you know what? They're going to remain restless for eternity. And so, friends, as I close, how will you respond? The Lord of the Sabbath, the one who will not break a bruised reed and will not snuff out a smoldering wick, he does not want to burden us. He wants us to come to him, discard the aspects of our faith that are counterfeit, and to drink deeply of the blessing of rest he alone can give. And so I pray that we heed his demand to come, because it's really the real deal. I'll get the band up uh, as we respond in song together.